0: This morning we continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 25 to 31. So we'll read, uh, we'll read uh, verses 18 to 31 for uh, the total context as we look to these particular verses uh, this morning. Uh, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reads, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block and the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. In Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look to this particular section this morning, uh, I've entitled this sermon, uh, God Chose the Fools to Become Wise. God Chose the Fools to Uh, To become wise. And because this particular passage, this section, is largely related to the election uh, by which God calls those who are His and their salvation is made manifest to them, it's made real to them. uh, But God has chosen them, and He has chosen them by means outside of themselves. He's chosen them according to His divine grace, according to His love for them, and all of the things which we have been discussing and which we have seen in first Corinthians chapter one in the first uh, four to five verses where Paul greets the Corinthians. He then returns to that part of his greeting as we look to this section. But also before us is the conflict, because I do believe that this particular passage, it's all tied uh, to the conflict. It's tied to the raging conflict that is uh, somewhat brewing, and by this point, Paul will readdress it, uh, for uh, there was a fellowship that was taking place outside of the confines of the overall Corinthian gathering, and it was Chloe's people who were all gathered together, and so they heard of a conflict raging uh, in the church that was at Corinth, and so that conflict was brought to uh, brought to Paul, and the essence of the conflict Uh, Not only is the cause of the conflict something that we consider, but its effect and its cause are closely related. That is that we see uh, hero worship beginning to develop. We see slavery to men. We see worship of men and we see factions that have developed around each of those things. And so what Paul aims to do is Paul is trying to establish uh, to the people that God has made them wise in the work of the cross And that prior to that, they were fools. And I believe that that is true of every person who uh, is once unsaved and then they are saved by grace through faith in Christ. They were once fools according to God's wisdom. And then once they are saved by grace through, uh, through, uh, through salvation in Christ, they are then deemed wise. They have God's wisdom in the person of Christ, but also God's wisdom before them in his word. And so that's what Paul is trying to accomplish when he sets forward in uh, matters concerning the verses that we're looking at this morning. Verse 25, he, uh, he launches right into it after discussing the fact that to both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is not only the display of God's power, he is uh, God's power personified. He is not only the display of God's wisdom, he is God's wisdom personified so when we look in the face of christ we see both his power and we see wisdom from god he is uh he is those uh those two things and more but in verse 25 it also says because the foolishness of god is wiser than men and this talks about not only the means through which god has carried out and completed his plan of salvation in christ But also that man would not have come up with these terms had he been left to do so on his own. And so it says here that it's not saying that God has both foolishness uh, in his person and weakness. It is saying that God in human terms, as man understands him, uh, that God's the bottom of God's wisdom is the highest heights of whatever man could possibly achieve. And man could not achieve it. And if there were weakness in God, which there isn't. Uh, if there were weaknesses in, in God, if one were to deem that God had a flaw or weakness, then even that false assumption, that idea that God is, is weak, uh, God's weakness would be then even stronger than men. Uh, but he is not weak and he is not foolish. That's not what Paul is saying. God, what, he's, what he's showing is he's providing a measurement for man to see himself as outside of God, both foolish and weak. And he's saying, however strong and wise you think you are, then trust and believe that God is much wiser and much stronger. And it goes even to the idols that were established during this time. And I'll talk to you about the two particular ones. In society, they erected idols, a pantheon of so-called gods in the Greco-Roman Empire that stood uh, for certain attributes and functions in their society. Well, erecting those gods is foolishness. And those gods that they erected are weak and feeble. But you see, God, the one true living God, is not something that we develop in the mind. It's not something that you and I constructed on the basis of some kind of human gathering. And therefore we conceived of an idea that God is this person and we hatched his plan to try to create some religious atmosphere. No, it was God who has always existed because he's self-existent and God has always carried out his plan because his plan is eternal. And he sees to its completion. But even more, there is another set of idols which have taken place in the confines of religious worship uh, with respect to the church in Corinth, that they began to worship men. And so what he's showing is that men are all feeble. Men are all weak outside of Christ. And so in Christ, Christ is the only one worthy of our worship. And so no man, no conglomeration of men, no conglomeration of women. No person is worthy of worship because no person has in themselves inherent outside of God, eternal power and eternal wisdom. For all that we have concerning power and wisdom, we have only in Christ. And so Paul is making that point as he is trying to tear down this budding personality cult uh, that's developing in several expressions of uh, fracture and and factions and schism. And he's also trying to uphold the true supremacy of Christ over all men. That's important because so many today would talk about the supremacy of Christ in such a generic way. Or they would say the supremacy of Christ over all without defining the all. But I'm here to say that what Paul is aiming at What I am aiming at is to help you understand the supremacy of Christ over all men, over all men. And so he presides in full glory. He presides as the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords, and he presides over God, uh, over God's eternal uh, plan of redemption for all. And he is in cooperation with God himself, uh, God, the father and God, the Holy Spirit. And so we see that even in function, we see that this is the power of God on display. Uh, and it is known as the foolishness of the cross from the vantage point of the world's system because it is not a foolish plan. And then Paul goes right to it. When we look at verse 26, he says, God has God has chosen or for I'm sorry, in verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise According to the flesh, he's talking about the calling of those who were effectually brought into salvation uh, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, through what is known as divine election. That means by which God calls forward those who are dead in their sins and trespasses and he gives them life. He gives them a new nature. And when he calls, they come. But he says, consider your calling. Consider your calling. So we already know that it's not something that they bring about for themselves with respect to this calling, because they are too foolish to bring it about in themselves. Their nature is what is known as dead. They are dead in their sins and trespasses, so they cannot bring about the result of calling themselves forward into God's plan of redemption. That is a false ideology and false teaching at its core. But the true nature of this is that God has called them. And so Paul tells them to consider what God has done. And this is right in line with the whole New Testament. It's right in line with the Old Testament understanding of who God is and how he saves his people. It's also in line with all of Paul's epistles. But when we understand this, it is that what he's trying to get them to see is that they were not wise In the time in which they lived in rebellion toward God, there was no point in time during that time that they would be considered wise according to God's standard. Now, men could certainly move subjectively that standard and call themselves wise uh, by erecting a standard according to the flesh. But that is foolishness. And he says that. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble. It is certain God does not choose the wise according to the flesh and bring them into salvation and bring them into the fellowship of the Christians and bring them into the life of the church so that saying that God does not do this so that they would maintain the wisdom of the world And live in accordance to the false wisdom of the world. God doesn't do that. God doesn't create a certain what's known as syncretism. The blending of two ideas. So much so that they're not only related. But those two ideas are now superior to all other things in cooperation with one another. God doesn't do that. God doesn't blend together false with truth. Lies with the truth. Error. And soundness. He doesn't blend those things together and call men to live according to that standard. And in fact, as we look at the call of God, because that's what Paul wants the Corinthians to do. He wants them to consider election. He wants them to consider. Election. He doesn't want them to lay it aside because, oh, it's a little bit divisive in our revenue generated corporate pragmatic model of so-called church. We lay aside certain doctrines because they might interrupt cash flow. That's not what Paul says. He says, I want you first at the beginning of this long letter, he says, I want you to consider election, not only election. I want you to consider your election. Well, the reason he says that is because of all that he said before in the introduction, Paul introduces divine election and then tells him, I want you to consider it because it should be evident and it should be true in, in you. And what do I mean by that? Not only election as a static principle or doctrine, but I mean all the things concerning God's power as he chooses whom he will and what he accomplishes in those whom he chooses. And then what is required of them in terms of their fellowship with one another as he has chosen them. And we ended last time by saying a right view of the cross, a right view of salvation and a right view of Christ always produces a proper view of yourself and a proper view of others. When people begin to view themselves as exalted or others as exalted, they have taken their eyes completely off the cross. They have taken their eyes off of Christ. And so Paul says, I want you to consider election because here's the thing. Let's step back. When you consider election, it humbles you. When you consider the fact that God called me, I was a fool. And no matter what you think you are today or who knew you at the time that you were not a Christian, you can look back at that time and say, I was a fool. And that creates humility in you to consider you could not have brought yourself out of that state. Only God could have done that in you. Only God could have done that in me. No way we do that for ourselves. It is impossible. That is what Paul is saying. And he's saying that because if it were ours to choose, we would choose the wise. Oh, how do you know that? You see people do this in business. You see people do this in the company they keep. You see people do this in all kinds of walks of society. They choose the biggest, brightest, toughest, strongest, most articulate. They choose according to the wisdom of the world. Now, I'm not saying that there's a problem at times when you're choosing people who are competent. But I'm saying this isn't a matter of competency when we're talking about how do I how do I become saved? You're not saved because you were competent. You're not saved because you earned it. what Paul is saying. You're saved because God called you. And when he called you, you were a fool. And so he says uh, he says this, that this in God's plan, man could not have come up with this because man doesn't do it this way. All man can aspire to in the height of his fleshly wisdom is partiality. That's all he can come to when man chooses because we see it in the factions. We see it in the factions that develop. They say, well, you know, I'm of Apollos. I'm a Paul. I'm of Cephas Christ. They chose what they thought were the top 40 pop evangelical rock stars and said, let me get behind them because that is where my identity is placed. And Paul said those individuals are not against each other. And in fact, Christ is Lord over all. So the Christ that you're choosing to bring into faction is not the Christ of the cross that I'm preaching before you. That's why I say this section is completely related to the section that precedes it and the section that will succeed. it. But Paul is against he's against uh, this propensity that man has to exalt himself as strong outside of the confines of God's sanctifying work in his life. He's against man exalting himself as wise outside of the confines of God, bringing wisdom to him first in Christ by changing his nature. And then the fact that wisdom is justified over children, as Jesus said, that the wisdom that has been granted to you, you demonstrate that wisdom. And therefore, you are bearing testimony and evidence that you have the wisdom of God from above by your actions, by your speech and also by clear testimony. But they were to consider their calling. They were to consider this divine election in the wisdom of God. And we know that it's that type of calling because, as I've said, nothing in this says that man could bring himself to the present state of his salvation and has translated himself from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man can't do that on his own. This very pass, right there in verse 26 that man can't do. It doesn't say man won't try. It doesn't say man won't raise up his evangelist to philosophize about this, but man will not be uh, successful in doing so. But let us again tie this to the conflict that has occurred before the beginning of this chapter, because, again, this letter is a letter and a letter as uh, an epistle that has features of a narrative in it. It should flow from one thought to the next. It's not that Paul says, let's take an intermission because I want to give you a seminar on the foolishness of the cross. Let's put aside the conflict so I can talk about the cross. Well, we don't see that grammatically because in verse 18, what we see is a connect, a connecting conjunction that ties the passage before together and everything before together. And then we see words that uh, continue to do so. Uh, if you look at verse 21, four since in the wisdom of God. Verse 22, for indeed Jews. Verse 26, for consider. And then you see purpose statements in there. Verse 31, so that. You see these so that show up, these purpose statements. Everything is connected to what has transpired in the greeting and also in the conflict. So we don't get to a point where we just end the conflict and set that aside and pretend it didn't happen. Paul doesn't say this conflict is bad for business. What Paul says is I'm going to address the way to cast down the arguments that are being raised up in the conflict. And I'm going to show you at every turn what that conflict has produced, why the church in Corinth is acting so fleshly, and how to call the people to repent and how to resolve the issues that befell the church. Paul goes right to the issues. He doesn't hide from them. What I'll say the big one is this. What he is dealing with in our passage, in our particular passage, in the near context, is essentially when we look at Christ and what he has accomplished for our our salvation, there is no room to hide in men. In fact, there is no freedom. in There's only freedom in being hidden in Christ. And I can go to the Gospels for you. I can go to John 15 for you, where Jesus says, abide in me. Don't abide in everybody. Abide in me. And he's saying that in the midst of hostility, persecution of people who hated him. So there's no room to hide in men. There's no room to be enslaved to men. There's no room to be worshipers of men. And when we consider, listen to this, because we, we talked about this at the end of Romans. Romans. When we consider that all of us started before our salvation, none of us were born saved. All of us started before our salvation as fools in this world. When we consider that, none of us are worthy of worship. None of us are worthy of worship. And yet when we are born again, listen to this, when we are born again, we are made wise All of those who name the name of Christ, we are made wise. Now, some of us will sharpen that wisdom a bit more, but we are made wise in our new nature by God and Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom and power of God. We are made wise in our new nature. So it's why it's not a strange thing to call people who are confessing Christ to be wise in him, to exercise divine wisdom from above, to exercise wisdom in his word. To not try to gravitate toward the wisdom of men. And the wisdom of the world system. But to aspire in Christ by his power. By his spirit in you. Working in you. To be wise in him. And it is the best place to be. I'm going to tell you why. Look at verse 27. For you see a contrast. A contrast that deals with the fact that had the world had their means to choose and worldliness as it enters the church, if they choose as they choose, then they would certainly do so on the basis of prestige. But it said God doesn't choose that way. God doesn't choose that way temporally. He likes to throw people off in that regard. He likes to reveal their pride, their partiality, their value systems that are weak and pitiful. And the people they choose always fail. Which is why they always got to move everybody along. And they always have to make conferences and apologies about each other. Because they're choosing according to worldly wisdom. You see the false religious systems in the world at large. When they choose their so-called gods. Their so-called gods cannot satisfy. Always wrong. Always despair. And when you point that out to them. They get so angry with you. Because their system isn't working. And they're angry with you that you're telling them that. But. They have been left to choose for themselves, and as they choose, they're choosing foolishness. But if you look at us, if you look at us, we were, not are, we were castoffs. We were castoffs. Because when God chose us, it said He chose, and Paul is saying this to the church in Corinth. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. There's a reason that he chose us. He didn't just choose us, but he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Well, that would mean when he chooses you to become wise, you are then wiser than the world to put their wisdom to shame. So why do people want to drink in the cesspool of the world's wisdom and try to do that and then claim that they're fighting against the world's wisdom? As opposed to being in God's wisdom and having more wisdom in themselves because of God in them, that they have more wisdom than the whole world system combined. So I always tell the Christians as an encouragement, if you are a believer in Christ, you have more wisdom than the than the world system's uh, most wisest, most articulate, most studied, most researched individuals whom they put forward. You have more wisdom than all of them combined if you are in Christ. Now, that's not a source of great swelling pride in yourself. It is not only a source of humility, but it is a source of courage and confidence. But you have more wisdom than all of them combined. We're not speaking mythology. We're not speaking about incoherence, because if it is clear in God's word and it's incoherent uh, to that man, then that man is a dead man. He's a dead man. His nature's dead. Everything about him is dead. He can't understand. But we were castoffs. We were castoffs in the world system. You may be even thinking back to a time where you may say, well, no, I was thriving in the world system. Yeah, you were thriving on your way to hell. You were a castoff. The world did not care about you. And let me be even more frank with you, the world doesn't care about you today in and of themselves. They could care less. But God does. And so when God chose, when God chose by the cross work of Christ, we were cast off. We were not strong. We may have thought we were strong. We may have uh, raised up mantras and other means uh, to produce an appearance of strength within ourselves. But we were not strong. We were weak. Think about that prior to your salvation. You were not strong. You were weak. Couldn't even hold it together. None of us. Couldn't do anything to bring us to the right knowledge concerning who God is in his word in and of ourselves. We were not noble. We were not noble. He didn't choose us because we were born of nobility. That's how the world chooses. That's how the modern evangelical church chooses. That's how Roman Catholicism chooses. That's how Islam chooses. That's how all the fraternities, all the cults, That's how Hollywood chooses. That's how all these people choose who they want to represent whatever they're about. But God says, I didn't choose you that way. I didn't choose you that way because I didn't want you to hide in that. I wanted to strip that away from you. I didn't choose you by your birthright, by being of lofty or royal or high standing." Does that mean that God doesn't choose those individuals in salvation? No. But what it means is if he does, they renounce it. Because what they then have is greater. Our inheritance is greater. Our heirship is greater. Our king is greater. Our eternal hope is greater. But he says, you are not noble. You are not among the mighty. Paul called the Corinthians to think of themselves. Really see yourself how God sees you. And listen, see yourself how God sees you at the outset of your salvation that's been made manifesting. And when you do that, you will not chase after these men. See yourself as, as God sees you. Before Christ, Paul says, you were commoners. Before Christ, you were commoners. He doesn't say you're commoners now. You were commoners and you were fools in the world and you were weak. Now, if we just left it there and that's all we had to say this morning, there would be no motivational speeches to give as people like to give. But I'm so glad that this goes beyond motivational speech. I'm glad that what we're talking about is eternal standing before God. That whatever motivation I have to live in accordance with that, it's based on what Christ accomplished and what Christ accomplished alone. It's not based on what some man did for me. It's not based on what school some individual went to. It's not based on if my parents did or did not have what they had in order to propel me forward. I'm thankful for helping hands as we ought to be. But that is not what legitimizes me in the eyes of God. What legitimizes me in the eyes of God is the cross work of Christ. That's how he called me out of death. It's by his cross. That's how he called you out of death. So we were not brought forward because of our royal and lofty standing. Not because we were strong in the flesh. Mighty in the flesh. But Paul says, what he says is, That God has chosen the fools to become wise. He doesn't say God has chosen the fools to keep us foolish. But instead he has chosen as us who were once fools. Now we are wiser than those who possess all the world's wisdom. We're wiser now. We are wise because of the wisdom that has come to us from above. We are wiser because we have God's Holy Spirit living in us. That's why I can speak about all of us who confess Christ. We are wiser. It's not that I'm wiser than you, it's that we're all wiser than the world system if we are indeed in Christ because of what Christ has accomplished in us. It's also why, in the context of exhorting, encouraging, explaining God's word, it can be coherent. It can be brought to you in a way that you understand when you have God's Spirit. It's not so much that you are a fool in Christ now who needs to be made wiser by the elites. No, it's that all of us are wise in Christ because we have His Spirit, because we have been saved by the same grace through faith in Him. And so there is this wisdom from above that we all possess and in the face of the world's wisdom that says we are the fools, we are wiser than them. We are wiser than them. And the reason for which God has accomplished this is because we put the wise in this world to shame. We put them to shame. We put them to shame by our fellowship, we put them to shame by our testimony and proclamation. We put them to shame Uh, By the content of that testimony, that teaching and that proclamation, we put them to shame by the very presence of our lives among them. We put them to shame on the basis of every other thing you can possibly think of that relates to our sanctifying walk. We put them to shame based on how this ends, knowing that we are going to inherit an eternal kingdom. We put the world to shame because look at their little kingdoms. Look at the people they raise up. Look at the men and women they raise up as their leaders. And I'm talking about within the annals of false religion and also within the annals of the world system that wants nothing to do with constructed and organized uh, religion. Look at what they've come up with. It doesn't work. None of it works because none of it works eternally. Because remember what Paul said about wisdom? Look at verse 20. uh, Look at verse 21. How do we define how effective wisdom is? Verse 21 of chapter one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world. Look at this through its wisdom, did not come to know God. When we're saying someone or something is wise, am I coming to know God through what is presented? Am I gaining a knowledge of God and his practice through what is done? And if that's not happening, then it's foolishness. It's foolishness. He doesn't say join the world's wisdom and somehow the world might make some agreement, some wager, some concession with you to uh, to invite your wisdom to be their standard of wisdom. It doesn't work that way. The world hates Christ. They think you're a fool when you're in Christ and they're not. And they may masquerade as though that's not the case, but it will always come out that that's the case. And it's true whether they tell you it's the case or not, because the Bible says it's so. They believe that we're fools. And we don't believe that they're wise. We believe they're fools because that's what the Bible says. Now, I have divine wisdom to bring you out of your foolish state. But I trust God because you can't do that in and of yourself, just like I could. That's why Paul says, even in this epistle, when he gets into deeper matters of immorality, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. We put the world's wisdom to shame, not in anything of ourselves. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. It's not in anything in and of ourselves that we're putting the world in. It's the wisdom from above in us, proclaimed by us, by the Holy Spirit who lives in us and by Christ in us and by the corpus, the body of divine scripture that we have in full agreement with it as we proclaim it as God's will. That's the wisdom that we have. We have that wisdom. No one else has that wisdom unless they be in Christ himself. We have wisdom in our salvation. We have been called forward in him. We have been elected at a time prior to our knowledge. He called us and it had been made manifest at a time that we recognize. So even when people try to categorize this, well, I've been saved 25 years. I've been saved 30. When they do that, that's foolish. Because God called us all at a time when we didn't realize when we were being called. But when he called, we all came. And it doesn't matter if it happened two weeks ago. It doesn't matter if it happened 50 years ago. What matters is that we're in him. Now we have his wisdom. Now let's get on about the business of dethroning the world's wisdom. And we all can do that if we're in Christ. Yeah, it may take time to sharpen the spiritual gifts that God has given us. Yeah, it may take time to sharpen our discernment. But that is the direction that we ought to be headed as the body of Christ. Because what happens when we begin to categorize uh, God's salvation plan on the basis of some fleshly standard, we will develop the same factions that were developed in the church in Corinth. When we make it a matter of time, a matter of age, a matter of experience, a matter of anything except the cross work of Christ and its real, truest form, we will develop factions. We will develop personality cults. But listen, I'll tell you this, because Paul goes here with it. Verse 28, he says, and the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Purpose statement, verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Listen to this. We ought not pretend we have always been strong. We can't even pretend that we have always been strong. Now, we don't drag our minds through the mud of all the times we were weak, but I'm saying we can't pretend that there was a time where we just came upon this earth and we were just, at that point, Christian. We can't do that. For one, you will either subtly or very openly Solicit worship of yourself because you're basically saying you're the Messiah, you're the sinless one, but also because it's not true. Nor should we pretend we were born of nobility and high standing because we weren't. We really weren't. Because whatever we identify in our families, if they be not in Christ, whatever their financial state, they're dead. In the world system, they're dead. In the world system, they face God's divine wrath. Whatever they hold in this life, however they can propel us forward financially, if that is all we are identifying with, then they have no place in God's kingdom. In fact, your standing is above theirs, if that's the case, because you hold to an eternal kingdom, whereas they hold to eternal torment. Instead, there was prior to his salvation for us and in us. Listen to this prior to I'm not trying to discourage anybody this morning. If you are in Christ, I'm saying prior to him, prior to him, there's nothing significant about us. I'm not saying people can't do charitable deeds, but I'm saying those charitable deeds do not have a saving effect upon the life of that person left to itself and left to themselves. There's nothing significant about us from the perspective of eternity so long as we belong to the world system. That's the key word, from the perspective of eternity. Because people can play hypotheticals all day. Well, what about this? What about a person that do this? Well, from the perspective of eternity, was that act done to bring glory and honor to Christ himself? And was that an open proclamation? And does the Bible legitimize that action as being in step with one's sanctification? Because then, should we boast? A big key to this is when we boast, we boast in the Lord when we do that act. We don't say, look what I did." But this also, as I've said, the fact that we have nothing insignificant, I'm sorry, nothing significant about us from the perspective of eternity prior to being in Christ, it causes us to boast solely in Him as this epistle commands us to do. I've said it before. Because God has chosen to despise, we are the despised when you're in God now. You're the despised. The world doesn't let the world hate you, they hate Christ. They hate the Christians. That's not a surprise. Peter talks about that. It's not a surprise when they bring their trials, when they mock you, when you're standing in front of some tribunal, when you're accused and you had nothing to do with anything that's happening, but you find yourself in the middle of something. That is because the world system hates you. They hate the Christians. You'll be able to get along in the world system in God's power, but they hate you. You're not trying to unlock the world's wisdom in order to advance in the world's wisdom. They hate you. It's set against you. And it's going to come to a a, a wrathful and fiery ending. But we do not use the world's wisdom to to confound the world's wisdom. For so many today are doing that very thing. Instead, we have the wisdom of God and we are an open display of his power and testimony of salvation. And that is before a world who prides itself on its own abilities. And so in verse 28, we see that God has chosen the base things. He's chosen those things considered to be insignificant, common. And further, he says that he has chosen that which is despised. And he's done so to nullify or to render void the things that are Listen to me, the true Christian in the hand of God, he's the instrument through not only which the gospel advances, because a lot of people would say that, and that is true, but he's also the instrument through which God chooses to put the whole world's fullest wisdom to shame, the whole world's system to shame. That's what he chooses, and I'll tell you, it's not in often dramatic acts as people want to do. They want to take over institutions so that the world somehow will recognize we're Christians. It's through the daily act of our sanctification. Just doing that would put the world to shame. But listen. He has said that this is the case, Paul saying it to the church in Corinth that we can benefit from because in verse 29, he says the purpose that this takes place is not just to do it for the purpose of doing it. He says the purpose is so that no man may boast before God. He does it this way so that nobody can make a boast. So that this individual is not exalted to this place in the so-called church and this individual is not cast down to this place In the so-called church. And Paul will get there further as he deals with operating and and functioning uh, as believers with respect to the gifts as they are practiced in the church. He's going to go there as well. But the idea is that no man may boast in himself or other men. Listen to this. As though we have received something that has not been given to us by God. People who are enslaved to men, you hear them speak less and less and less and less of Christ. If at all. And I've seen over the years where they don't even mention Jesus anymore. They just mention this. Read this guy's book. Listen to this guy's message. Go to this seminar. Go to this fad. Try this. Try that. Try this program. And Christ is so far from their lips because he's so far from their hearts. But listen, I'll go I'll go right to where Paul is going. Because it's where he's going when he talks about boasting before God. The idea is that no one may boast in himself or other men. And beyond that, that no one should receive the fading acclaim and affirmation from one another. Because they can only go to the heights of praising one another. Remember what I said about the conflict? That Paul was dragged into the conflict. What Paul would have said if he were a modern evangelical rock star trying to build his dynasty, he would have said, well, let's cast off the other three factions and just belong to the Paul faction. And I'm going to say all the correct things that I want you uh, to understand, but you belong to my faction. No, what Paul says is there are no factions. I'm a humble servant of Jesus Christ, just as you are. I have all of his divine wisdom as disclosed to us, as revealed to us, the mystery revealed, just as you do if you're in him. So in that, we are no different. And so Paul dethrones that. But listen... These individuals who are raised up to receive this fading acclaim, this affirmation from one another, where they continuously praise one another, they are not those whom God has chosen to confound the wisdom of this world. They're not the, they're operating in the wisdom of this world because Paul is dealing with how it <clears throat> creeps into the life of the church. But he's also dealing with where it's coming from. It's coming from the world. He's showing you both sides of it because they crave the wisdom of this world. That's how the world operates. The world operates in the sense in which it needs the world's acclaim to be motivated, to move forward. Not the Christian. You can call the Christian whatever you want. As long as the Christian is commended by God, then glory be to God. You say whatever you want. As long as God has purchased me on the, on the, uh, by the cross work of his, as long as I'm justified by the cross work of Christ, by his uh, resurrection, then, uh, then glory be to God. That's what he's saying. And so you see that the result of it, the purpose for it is this craving, this undue praise of men from men. Paul says, I don't want that for you. Because this has to do with your whole walk. Look at verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That's why you're boasting before God. That's why God is your boast alone. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. It wasn't Cephas, it wasn't Apollos, it wasn't Paul, and it wasn't the faction Christ that really wasn't the true Christ because they had not brought the true Christ to bear as Paul had. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He's saying this has to do with our whole, our whole walk. Being in him, being declared not guilty based on the cross work of Christ. And then not only as we wrap this up, not only being in him, but being the wisdom of God as it appears before others in his word and by God being in us and with us and revealing himself to us. He is our only perfect righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our saving work of redemption. And listen, the day will reveal that he has purchased us as the spirit has set the seal of Christ upon us. That is where Paul goes next in chapter 2. The day will reveal our boast. So we don't need to boast in such a way in temporal things and in temporal people in such a way that we're trying to just get some type of energy uh, for this thing and motivation for this thing called Christianity. That we get off track. No. What the word of God says is make your boast in God because he, he is eternal. And therefore your boast will be vindicated and validated. In all this, Paul says in verse 31 as we close, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The occasion should purpose us or cause us only to boast, if we must boast at all. Our boast should only be in Christ. It should only be in him, no one else. This is full reliance on Christ, full reliance on the Spirit, by the blessed Holy Spirit, and we do not boast in ourselves and others because of all that Christ has accomplished. Let's pray.